0: On two, 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 one, bones, two, two, one, two. Seagulls float between the buildings, born on the back of the wind. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air, and it's home to. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at JohnLennonSeries.com. Welcome,
1: Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour
0: in the cold night, air, and it's home for me. Home to again, hey boy. Home
1: again. Good evening, everyone. I woke up yesterday, picked up my cell phone, and saw a message there from my friend, Lena Stagg. Oh my God, Jude, are you all right? was all it said. I started thinking, is there a hurricane headed toward Louisiana, as they are wont to do? But then, while I was planning my escape route, I looked down and saw the second message on my phone. It was from Steve Marinucci at Beatles Examiner, and it said, Cynthia Lennon has passed away at age 75. And then I knew what Lena was writing me about. At the New York metro fest for Beatles fans two weeks ago i got to deliver a talk on cynthia lennon the real fifth beetle and it's a publication that i put out about two years ago along with my book the third one in the john lennon series she loves you which tells cynthia's story and was dedicated to her and i hope that somehow she got to hear about those things Angie McCartney was sweet enough to send Cynthia a copy of the book about a month ago, and I hope that she knew that I wrote it for her and dedicated it to her and that it is her story. You know, in the anthology, John says, it helps to say, my mommy's dead. It doesn't exercise it, bang, gone, but it does help. So tonight, because it helps to say it, I hope that you'll let me share with you the tribute that I published for Cynthia on Beatlesorama yesterday, and on Beatles News, and on thefest.com. It's called Cynthia, shine on. She was there in the basement of the Jacaranda, holding John's microphone for him, well, a mic taped to a broom. In 1959, long before Stu Sutcliffe or Brian Epstein or Pete Best or George Martin ever appeared on the scene, She lovingly told John that he was too big for Liverpool. And she watched him rehearse with Paul and George in room 21 at Liverpool College of Art during those lunchtime sessions of 1959 and 1960 and unswervingly. Finn believed it was John's destiny to achieve the toppermost of the poppermost long before the beatletts or even the wooden tops existed. Cynthia was the first. To understand and cherish John's dream. When Sin found out she was pregnant, John immediately, immediately offered to marry her. And you know what? Had she pressed him to leave the band and become a proper husband and father, I honest, honestly believe he would have been just as dutiful in doing the right thing. But Cynthia never asked that of John. Instead, she spent her honeymoon night alone moving into Brian Epstein's Faulkner Street flat and making a home for John that evening, even though he'd offered to take her along with him that evening to his gig. Cynthia refused. She chose to remain in the background, to shun the limelight, and to give John a home to which he could always come when he was tired, frustrated, and in need of real love. During the year, August 1962, August 1963, the year that Brian forbade her to appear in public with John, Cynthia, accordingly, and vanished from sight to help her husband's career. She ran from reporters. She shielded her husband and her son. She pushed her needs aside and endured aching loneliness so that the Beatles could grow and emerge as the stars she knew they were to be. And when girlfriends joined the troop of Beatles, as did Maureen Cox, Cynthia befriended them and made them feel welcome. She worked side by side with Frida Kelly to answer John's fan mail and she endured that mad torrent of fans in Emperor's Gate for much longer than was humanly possible. Cynthia did whatever John needed her to do to help him achieve the life for which he longed. Did John love Cynthia? devotedly in January of 1964 the Beatles were appearing for three weeks in Paris and during that time they got one day off one day off the other three Beatles spent that day sleeping late sightseeing having a grand old time but John flew back to London for that 24 hours to spend that one day with sin it was worth it to him she recharged him she inspired him she made him whole on that one day that they were together, John invited Sin to come along with him on his first American visit coming up in February of 1964, even though Brian had forbidden them to ask his wife along, He wanted Cynthia to share in the excitement and the joy of his success, a success that her devotion had made possible, and she accepted. At Ed Sullivan, Carnegie Hall, Miami, Washington, D.C., Cynthia was there. In America, reporters tried to get her to talk. She would not. She stayed in the shadows and let her husband take the vows. She made her life about John and John's son, her beloved Julian. And even when she wrote her first book, A Twist of Lennon, she minimized John's faults and played up his strengths. She was his best friend. Larry Kane and Lennon revealed right. The romance between Cynthia Powell and John Lennon, somewhat forgotten in modern times of Lennon remembrances, often ignored when it was in full bloom, is a significant one for the young artist. Although the marriage was prematurely instigated by the pregnancy that brought Julian to life, there is no question that Cynthia was John's first real and intense romantic love and that her role in his early days of creativity with the Beatles cannot be discounted and Tony Bramwell Kane notes adds, Cynthia was beautiful physically and on the inside although she knew he was apt to find love on the road she was totally dedicated to John's success and I might add influential John was insecure Cynthia was always there to pump him up to buttress his weak side she was a wonderful mother who loved John deeply John's indiscretions were ignored by Cynthia. His anger was forgiven. His focus on his career rather than his marriage was never even considered a problem to his adoring wife. Cynthia wanted the best for John always. And that kind of unconditional love sparked, When I get home, do you want to know a secret? I call your name and it won't be long. And so many more. Even when Beatlemania began to take its toll on their marriage, John penned the haunting, its only love, for his sin. Yesterday, the world lost the fifth beetle. But more importantly, it lost a true lady who made nighttime bright, very bright. Cynthia Lennon will always shine on. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't even have a show tonight in honor of sin, but as fate and God would have it, my very favorite person to have on this radio show, has been scheduled for several months to be on tonight, and if anyone can lift our spirits and make us smile, it's my guest this evening. He is a Grammy award-winning sound engineer who meticulously took those scratchy, cloudy recordings of Duke Ellington's from the 1920s and 30s and restored them so lovingly that he won a Grammy for his work. He worked with John and Yoko, and he's going to tell us that story on the Walls and Bridges LP. And I guess at that time it was the Walls and Bridges album, wasn't it? And he worked with Yoko on her production, Fly. But also he's worked with Harry Nielsen and The Four Tops and Alice Cooper and Cher and even one time a naked pianist. Yep, you heard me right, a naked pianist. So help me welcome to the show Probably the largest and happiest and brightest ray of sunshine in the Beatles' world, none other than Mr. Dennis Ferrante. Are you on the line, my friend?
0: Yes, I am. How are you?
1: I am great. How are you doing?
0: <clears throat> well, a little sad about Cynthia's passing, but I'm doing okay.
1: You tell me that you actually got a chance to meet her and spend some time with her, didn't you?
0: Yes, when Julian first had his first uh photo show in uh I I don't know if it was the Morrison Hotel, the Morrison Gallery, uh yeah, I was invited down to see him and I met him and I have a few I have a couple of pictures with him and um 'cause he never met me. He heard of my name but he never met me. And I was introduced by a friend of mine to him and he grabbed me around the neck and gave me a big <laughs> hug and said You know, it's wonderful to meet you. And I said, you know, it's the same on this end. I've always wanted, the last time I saw you, I said, it was, you were a kid. You were like 14, 13, 14 years old. That was the last time I saw you, you know. And um, all the while, I mean, you know, anytime that when I started working with John, and we started working on like, you know, besides Imagine, uh, we started working on, when I started working on Mind Games, my son was born. And when my son was born, I brought him into the studio. And uh, I mean, I did you know, I didn't just hold my son, my, my ex, my ex-wife at the time had brought him, my son in and he was holding my son and I could see, a, I could see He was remembering, he remembered the the pain that he had for not being around for Julian. And you could tell. And he said, it's been a long time for me to hold the baby. I said, it's okay, Mm -hmm. no big deal. But then he started, you know, tossing my son up in the air. Mm -hmm. And I just said, you know, um, it's been a long time for you. Probably forgot a lot. He said, in what way? I said, well, you don't, you know, don't toss the baby up in the air. And as I'm saying it, he says to me, why is why is my hand all wet? And I said, uh, I think my son peed on you, Cause, and my son did. And I said to myself, well, it's the first time of somebody peed on a beetle, you know, because I don't know of any other time that's ever happened. And – um He just started, he looked at me, and he started laughing, and he said, here. And he held my son like a sack of potatoes, you know, (laughs) because he was wet. And I said, well, I said, you got a lot to learn, you know, a lot to remember, actually. And um, that was, that's how, you know, I mean, I broke the ice with him on that one. And then we used to talk in the studio after everybody had left. We used to talk in the studio and he would say to me, you know, uh, you know." We, I, he would pick up his Martin and he would start playing. And I said to him, I, you know, he was amazed that I could harmonize with everything that he did.
1: Because, wow.
0: you know, it's just that I'm a singer. So as soon as I heard him singing a couple of songs, whether it was Beatles, it was oldies, what you name it. I was, you know, I could harmonize with him. So he Mm -hmm. stopped playing and he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, you're real good at singing. I said, yeah. I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you ever need another singer in the band, you can call me. I'll be happy to join. And he just started (laughs) laughing, you know. (laughs) So that's, that's the kind of rapport we had with him. But it was more than that. It was respect. And when he did his album, he would always come in to me and say, how did I do, how was the vocal? And I would say, wow. you know, I said, yeah, it's all right. I said, I've heard better. So he'd go <laughs> back in and he'd do it again. And he would say to me, you know, like, put that effect on my voice and make it, you know, really a lot of it. And I used to say to him that you don't need the effect. you got a good voice. And he would say to me, no, my voice sucks. He said, I don't like it. And he said, the more you put that effect on, the better I'll sing. And he was right. The more I, f- I put the effect on the delays and, and the phasing and flanging and everything on his voice, the better mm-hmm. he sounded. I guess it, it was insecurity but... yeah, on his yeah, part. Yeah. yeah, You know, that's But amazing. that was, that's yeah, it was amazing. And he never really thought himself as a great guitar player. He figured really? he was an, he always said he was an average, you know, musician. And I used to say to him, I said, yeah, I said, I've, you know, I, I've i met your kind before. And he would look at me like, what? <laughs> and I would say, yeah, you're an average musician. And the people he had around him were outstanding. I mean, he always had, his band in the studio was outstanding. I mean, he had yeah. Jim Keltner on drums. Klaus Bormann on bass, uh, Jesse Jesse Ed Davis on guitar. Sometimes he would have Nicky Hopkins on piano. If it wasn't Nicky, it was um, Kenny Asher. I mean, he had a group, and he would come in, and the one thing that I really, really learned a lot from him, you know, learning my craft, is and Uh nobody ever did it again. He would come in and he would, you know, write, he would sing the song down to the guys in the band and they would, you know, they would learn it real quick. And then we'd do like two takes, maybe three takes of the rhythm section and that would be all. And wow. then he'd go in and he'd do his vocal. And then he would go in if we had to add anything else, guitars or anything, he would do that. But the one thing that amazed me about John's records is that he did one song a day. He didn't do wow. like, well let's do all the let's do all the rhythm tracks today. Let's do all uh-huh. the vocals today. He did one uh-huh. song. So when we when he came, you know, when he would come in, the song would start. I mean, he would it would be from start to finish and we yeah. you know, mix it and everything. If we had, mix it and everything that night. So at the end of the night he had a finished song and then as you do them, you if you listen to something like Mind Games and Walls and Bridges and some of his later stuff, you'll hear that everything sounds a little different. The drums aren't the sounding the same, even though it's the same player. They're not right. sounding the same. The bass may not be exactly the same. Guitars change, vocals change. It was that that's what made a re, that's what made recording fun. Today everybody, you know, everybody tries to do everything technically right. And like I said right. to a friend of mine that I heard his record the other night, I went to hear him in the studio and I said he said, How's it sound? I said, Yeah, it's technically right. There's no personality, but it's technically right. Yep. And he looked yep. at me and he said, What do you mean by that? I said you're changing everything around. You're making sure that every drum hits on the same beat and every guitar is, is plays right on the money. That's not music. I yeah. said that doesn't yeah. sound like music. I said one of the one of the funniest things is when I was working with Johnny Winner. He said <laughs> to me one time, I said to him, "John, can you, you do it? It's a, you know, a little sloppy the playing." And he talked back at me in the studio. He said, rock and roll is never meant to be perfect. And I said, (laughs) you know what? You're right. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. It's not meant to be perfect. And John was a, a proponent of that. I mean, he did stuff that nobody else did, and he was willing to take chances. Like I said to him, let's try this effect. Let's try that effect. And he would sit there and say, yeah, well nah, I'm not crazy about it. I said, Okay. Mm-hmm. And we'd move on. Right. That's right. that's how I remember John. I mean I remember John for many other things, but I remember John for his wit. I remember yeah. John for and that was that was the thing that uh, really amazed me. John was like very witty, very talkative, and Cynthia was very quiet. And she right. just, you know, she let him let him run with it you know she didn't you know she knew who he was and she wanted right. him to be you know successful but she didn't want to get in the way
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. like some and other people and that was an
1: important role an important role that she played you know she knew that that if she did that she enabled him to be who he was
0: and he he took full advantage of that you know he yep. really did and I saw the change when he when he was when he married Yoko there was a change. I mean I don't, I guess he would, you know I don't know. I guess he was I always thought that he married Yoko and it was just maybe at a time he thought he was in love with her but as time went on I don't know if he was as crazy as everybody says he was. I worked right. with him and I didn't see that. You yeah. know, I saw well, tell him us
1: that. Yeah, tell I want you, you what? to tell everybody that story because I know the story of the first time that you worked with them. But we talked about it when I was on beatles Beatlesorama, but I don't know if this listening audience has heard it, and it's a classic. Would you tell that story?
0: Yeah. right. Well, it's it's um, I was I had just started working at the studio. I would just and it was it was called the record plant, and I yep. started working at the studio and. I'm like, you know, I I saw that, you know, there was nobody in there, but I saw when he came in, I saw him come in, and I knew what was going on. I wasn't stupid. I picked up on it right away. At that point in time, Jack Douglas was the assistant engineer on it. Roy Sakala was the engineer, and John was right. coming. Roy was John was coming to see Roy, and I guess he heard a lot about him, and he wanted to he wanted to see how good Roy was. And he came, and when they came, he brought just the piano vocal of Imagine. He, even though, if you look at Imagine's album, you'll see it on it it says, you know, recorded by you know, recorded by so and so, Phil Spector producing. Right, well, he right. produced the majority of the album, but we redid Imagine because John hated it. He said it's oh. too mushy. He said it's too this. It's too that. He said, you know, a couple of words that you can't say on radio, but, you know, he just said, I, he, wanted, he said, I want, to do, I want to do it this way. So what we did is we took his, his two-track, actually what it was at the time, analog, and we bounced it up to a 30 IPS 24-track. So uh-huh. now we didn't have to use a two-track no more and now we could use what's on there. And then they had we had Alan White come in and Alan White, I mean as great a drummer as he is, he came in and he struggled with it in the beginning because if you listen to it, you have to be you have to really listen to it and tap your feet. The very beginning yeah. of Imagine where it starts with the piano, right right before the drums come in there's kind of a hesitation because John was playing and you know tapping you know tapping the pedal on a the piano. There's really yeah. no time. It's it's like you know freeform, and he's huh. singing and playing. And so Alan had to figure out a way, and he did. We must have did it about eight times, nine times. He finally figured how to put the tom toms in, and that's mm. if you listen to them, they come in. A, they hang back a little just to get into the rhythm of the song, and then it's yeah, okay. Yeah. And right after that, they had we had Klaus Warman come in, and, I mean, he was there already. He just went in, and he did the bass part again. He did a, a bass part on it. Mm-hmm. And then we had, um, let me see, after that, I think we had Ron, there was a guy named, a friend of mine I'd known for a long time, Ron Trangipani and he came in he was an arranger and he came in and and uh John went out and talked to him and he said look I don't want that kind of a string sound that you know Phil got he said I just really want you know like something following the song so really what he wanted we used to call with pads he just wanted the strings to to be in there he didn't want them to right, be right. playing any kind of crazy melody or something like that <laughs> so <laughs> they wrote this we bought in that afternoon. For the afternoon they came they called and we got twenty eight strings or twenty seven string players. They came in, Ron wrote the charts out. I ran upstairs and made copies for everyone, for the cellos and for everybody else that were there. And um after that uh they let everybody go home. The mm-hmm. vocals were done already. We he, he kept the vocals that were on that, on his uh, two track, and then yeah. we started mixing it. And by I would say by 11, 11.30 that night, the mix was finished. And somebody ran it over to Scott Muni, I think at the time it was either Scott Muni, it was Scott Muni. It was somebody I was either PLJ or another record, or another radio station, and it was on right. the radio before twelve o'clock that night.
1: Good grief! And that's crazy. I said,
0: "Wow, that's the way to make records." You know, unfortunately, yeah. you're not unless your name is John Lennon, you're not going to get it airplayed into that fast a time because it's right, a whole right. a whole thing that you have to go through. But it was amazing, and I'm glad that you know it came out the way it came out. You know, yeah, then after yeah, that, go ahead.
1: No, that said the ink wasn't even dry, was it?
0: No, no. And I mean, it was, (laughs) it was just, I, you know, and I just watched them do it. I couldn't get over it. You know, I just couldn't believe it. So in the meantime, while we're we're doing this, um, we went inside and we were doing, we, you know, I was, I had, I wasn't on the session. I was I was in the studio, but I just came in to see if there was any, you know, needed any help. And at this time, Yoko was sitting in like this doghouse, we called it, but it was actually a big drum booth that we had, and you could roll it around. It was heavy, but two guys could push this monster around, and it was off to the side, and Yoko was in there sitting on a stool, and she had headphones on. And every time she put her head down, the headphones slid off her head. And (laughs) I'm watching this, and I see this go on like three or four times. And I walk in, and I just walked up to her, and I said, hi, my name is Dennis. I said, let me have your headsets. And I took the headsets, and I realized that the night before, there was an R&B band in and the bass player must have been wearing these because he had a huge afro with Jerry Curl and everything else inside it, and the headphones, you you know, you could take the stuff in his head and make wheels turn because it was so slippery. So then I got the, I told her I got some alcohol, wiped them all down so they were back to being normal, twisted them a little, bent them in so they would be tighter, and I gave them to her. Yeah. I said, you know, then I she, you know, she put it on, and I said, okay. I so I'm walking out. I said, my name is Dennis. If you need anything else, you know, you can call me. I'll be just raise your hand. I'll come running in. And I'm walking mm-hmm. out. I'm saying, don't forget. You can call Dennis. Don't forget. And as I said that, she looks up at me and goes, f you. Now, oh being Italian, nobody says f you to me without me saying something back. And I turned around and I said, "No, f you!" And I realized, as I I couldn't take it back, it was out there hanging like a big, uh, like an like a balloon. And I said, "Oh God, I hope nobody heard that." So I go, I walk into the control room, and everybody is looking at me. Oh, I said, no. and I in my he, and in my head, I know that something happened. And my, the, the Roy looks at me, because he must have had the mic on, and he says to me, did you just say to Mrs. Lennon, uh, F you? I said, you don't understand. She said it to me first, and I started, I started sounding like Jackie Gleason on the honeymoon, who's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I didn't know what to say. Because I said, I, you know, I'm working there, like, not even two months. I know I'm going to lose my job now. So at this point, John gets up and starts to walk around the console. And I'm evaluating the situation. I'm saying to myself, well, if he comes by me, because he doesn't look happy, if he comes by me, should I throw the first punch and knock him down, or should I let him hit me? And I said, you know what? He's one of the Beatles. I'll let him hit me, you know. So he comes over, and he puts his arm around me, and I'm flinching left and right. And he said, "Uh, what's your name? And I said, Dennis. He said, Dennis what? I said, Dennis Ferranti. He said, Roy. And he said, I want, and he looks at me, and he goes, Dennis? I said, yeah. He said, I want Dennis, and I'm expecting him to say, fired. Right, right. I want Dennis on every one of my albums from now on. Anybody who tells my wife to F you the first time they meet her, he said, is a friend of mine. And that's how I started working with John. And after that, we worked great together. I guess he was impressed that I didn't take any any bull from her. I guess that's what it was.
1: That's hilarious, it's just and 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 she made no response then you, you was she nicer to you after that, or was no was she she's invisible? always you know
0: I mean, I have nothing bad to say about her. It's yeah. just that she was she's uh, i mean for lack of a better term, and I hope I don't get back to her, I always considered <laughs> her a cold fish, she was like you know she'd sit there and like, if we'd be doing and whatever we were doing, whatever record or album we were doing, she would order food and not ask anybody else in the room, except for her and John, to, for food. So they would right. come and they would, you know, they would, the one time I remember, clearly, we were doing something in one our big studio, and uh, she ordered food, and she was eating, I guess it was Japanese food, whatever, and she takes the uh, – I'm standing – I was running the – you know, I was a tape op at that time. I was the assistant. So now yeah. I'm I'm running the machine, and I see her, you know, turn around, and she gives me her little, you know, the package that the Chinese food comes in, those little buckets, those, yeah. you know, the cardboard. And she gives it to me, and she goes, I'm finished. <laughs> and, like, now what? Now the peasants can eat? I mean <laughs> – it was like I didn't take no. I, for lack of a better term, I wouldn't take any shit from her. And I said, you know, because this is this is who I am. If you're nice to me, I'll be out. Of, I'll go out of my way for you. If you're cold to me and nasty to me, I'll be nasty to you too. And I would never, you know. She would say, uh, uh, "I'm finished." So. I took it, you know, I took it and I put it on the side. I said, let me open it up. Maybe there's some, maybe there's rice in there. I could have something. I was, I was starving because we had started at like noontime. And yeah. it's now like seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. We haven't had any dinner. We haven't had any oh, food gosh. at all. Yeah. So I open it up and it's a fish head and it's looking oh. at me. And I said, she obviously doesn't realize I'm Italian, and a fish head yeah. to an Italian is definitely not the thing you want to do. So yeah, I, I give it I to one of the it. other guys. And I said, hey, this is, I can't eat this. This is for you. And he opens <laughs> it up, and he sees the fish head and screams. You know? <laughs> I, I said, And I said to him, I said, Wow, what a man you are! You know, <laughs> could have just closed it and said, "No, I'm not eating this." Maybe you know, you meant and that,
1: Dennis. Maybe that was a warning for you. I don't know.
0: I don't know. And I always, I always, you know, think about that. I mean, the things that she used to do, like she, their, their driver. I think his name was Tom, the driver uh-huh. who used to ride him around. Uh, he had to know every place in Manhattan. He had to know every place. She would, get, she would get a craving for a chocolate shake at 2 o'clock in the morning.
1: And oh he had God. to know
0: where to go to get one. Yeah. And I used to say, wow, God bless them. They couldn't pay me enough to do this. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. and... And I've been so I've been down that road, you know, and and working with him. I worked with John up to the rock and up up to the rock and roll album. By the rock and roll album, I was now engineering and I was doing a lot of stuff. Sure. And I couldn't go to California with Roy, so he took uh, he took Jimmy Iovine, which at that right. time we used to call Jimmy Shoes because That's he used to wear that. these. He used to wear these high, like high shoes, and everything. And I said, "How the hell are you walking that?" You know. <laughs> but that was him. And uh, I can't talk bad about Jimmy because Jimmy now owns part, half of uh, Interscope Records, so I okay. can't. Or Interscope Productions, whatever they have. And yeah. um, you know, so maybe I missed out on that. <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not the type of person. That could for lack of a better word, bullshit other people when I say something i you know I say the truth, you never yeah, want me to gone. you never want me to say I know that one of my engine one of the guys who taught me, a guy named Shelly Yakis, we were working on raspberries and uh-huh. and, and uh, we were doing something I forgot what it was, and they were they must have been mixing for like twelve hours. And I walked good, good. in, and Jimmy uh, Jimmy uh, Einer, who is the producer, who I've done other albums where I've done Raspberries with him, a Three Dog Night, he says to me, tell me what you – he said, what do you think? And I'm listening to it, and I said, yeah, it's good. It's a great mix. He said, no, tell me what you really think. Right. And I said, this is not going to come out well. I could tell him – I could see that now. I said, Hello. but I told him, I said, well, I've had, he said, what do you think of the horn section? I said, well, I've heard better horns in Times Square during rush hour. Yikes. And he looked at me. <laughs> Shelley turned around and looked at me. And Jimmy pulled all the faders down, which are the volume controls on the console, pulled everything down. He said, we're going to start again. Well, he wow. went to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom. Shelly said, can I see you in the studio? And I walked in the <laughs> studio, and I said, what's up? He said, I don't care who asks you to tell them the truth. You lie and tell it sounds great. He said, I've been doing this for 12 <laughs> hours. He hey, he asked me, didn't ask you. I told him the truth. And so yeah, they went back and remixed it, then. and it turned out to be a better mix anyway. You yeah. know, but... Wow.
1: And that's that's, the way
0: that's how that's how I am. I don't I don't lie. If somebody says to me, what do you think? I tell yeah. them. As a matter of fact, we a uh, a good example is that uh I don't know if you know who Shannon is, the artist. Oh, yeah, of
1: course. Of course. Well, she we did the, under, uh, cover I was working
0: Right, I've been she's been working on an album for quite a while and I went in there I went in, and she played me something, and she. I went to the studio. She goes, please come down. I went to the studio, and she said, what do you think? I said, well, I said, I don't know what it sounded like before, but you lost the snare drum. I said, you lost this. This is, can't be heard. There's so much effects on it. You can't tell what it is. Right. And she, lo- she looked at me, and she said, you know, I agree 100%. So they went back, yeah. and they fixed whatever they had to fix. Yeah. And that's the way the record came out. And I told her, I said, I hope it wasn't you. You weren't mad at me for doing. It. She said, No, that's why I asked you to come because you don't you don't lie when it comes to this. You say no, what, you it, she, say what you hear. I said, Of course. What am I lie for? Yeah, she.
1: Yeah. That's the kind of pride that she puts in her art and her music, and she certainly would want to know the truth.
0: Oh, she's just when it comes to her heart. I can't even, I can't even, I can't even describe how how incredible it is. I mean, yeah. we went to uh, we had an order. I was at an autograph signing and I went and helped her for a while. Help, you know, sell her stuff, and everybody sure. came up to, to came up to the table and said, "Oh, you know, these are nice photos," and I kept saying, "These aren't photos. These are yeah, paintings." Right. And you look at it, and I said, "You can touch it. Don't put your finger through the canvas, but you can touch it. This is a this is a this ain't a photograph. This is a painting." And she's yeah, just, yeah. She, you're right. She's meticulous on everything. You Let know, me tell you a story and about her. It shows yeah. in her work.
1: She um, did a the picture of John for my first book should have been there, and she did 19-year-old John with Elvis hair. Well, I had people say, oh, that's the best picture I've ever seen of John, and others say, that doesn't look like John. Well, Chas Newby, the Beatles' first bass player, was at the New York Metro Fest. He's standing a couple of tables away, he glances over, sees Shannon's painting of John, comes running over there, and says, now that, that is the John Lennon I knew. Of course, he knew him when he was nineteen. So there you go. There's a person who knew him who says that. There, she's that good.
0: Oh, she's unbelievable. And it's all, it's all, uh, it's from her. It's, it's. uh, She's not copying anything. She may see a picture that she likes, and it's all her. You know, it's free. I mean, free form. She's doing it. She's doing her. You know, the same thing, but she's doing it without. She's not tracing anything. And what's amazing, if you look at it, like she has a picture of Paul, and mm-hmm. um, I think it's Paul singing, and you could see yeah. she, you could see the sweat on his on his face. You could see wow. the uh, his little you know like a small like the, there's the, these are just things that she does. There's a, a little you could see hairs on his face, like from a beard that he didn't. It was like a five o'clock shadow or something. Wow. It's just amazing. She's an amazing, amazing artist.
1: Amazing, and that's the same kind of detail that you put into what you do because with this Duke Ellington, the, uh his collection that you won the Grammy for, you had to work with the tapes that were really back from the 20s, weren't they?
0: No, the, the tapes didn't come into existence till about the 50s. I was okay, working so it was well we had uh it's at the time in the 20s uh yeah. they had um They would they would make it a wax recording, and then from the wax recording they would press the records. Later on in the thirties, right before I guess it was right the the end of the thirties when they had the war effort, a lot of those records. Now that's only because that uh, well because RCA is was actually the GE corporation. And um, they, GE was involved in the war effort. So every record that I had to work with with Duke on that was a glass master. And I don't want to tell Ooh. you how many of the glass masters that snapped, because they, they were putting in in, the, they put them in cardboard and put them in the vault, and just the glass would crack. It would just snap. Yeah. So I'd take glass out in like four pieces, and then Ooh. I'd have to put them. I'd have to put them on a a turntable and then wear these like – they were like these very, very uh, – they were like – they look like magnifying lenses on my eyes. I'd have to wear this thing and line up the grooves so that I could see that – I could look at it and see that the lead-in groove, the one where you put the record on in the very beginning – and the, yeah. the run out, the one at the end where it runs to the center and the needle would pick up or something like that. I had to make yeah. sure that they were all in a line. And then look at the record itself to make sure that the, the, the walls and, and the grooves were the same, that they were Good. mixing you know, that they were there. Then put masking tape on the bottom to hold them so they stayed like that, and then went ahead and then started using what we call bifurcated um, needles. The needle was two styli on the end of the needle, and it would ride the top of the groove. In other words, when you pressed it, that groove that goes down, and you put the needle in, the reverse because the reverse is what made the the all the the vinyl was made yep. what made the records. So you'd have to play both sides of the of the of the wall, and I could listen, and I'd have to pick it up and put it on, and then pick it up and put it on again. I may have to oh, do great. this four or five times before I heard it. When I got it right, it was the signal. The music was loud when i got it wrong i heard like what was coming up at the same time i was hearing what was playing so it oh. it was a it was it was in a hard thing to do and then after all of that we had to have we had uh i had one of my one of the guys that i worked with he was working with a thing called sonic solutions which is now the i guess it was the forerunner of pro tools or any of these denoising yeah, things yeah,
1: yeah. Uh-huh, and he would
0: uh-huh. take he would take out the all the clicks cuz now you got a click every like you know every quarter of a sure. beat there's another click and he sure. would take you know he would first we went we had a program that took him out and then he would go back and dig in and take out some of the ones that were missed and I, he i always he asked me how to you know how he wanted it i said i would rather sacrifice taking out you know leaving a click in not to damage the the presence of the recording because they right. had they had things when they first came out all they did was take top end off a record, and it sounded cleaner. Well, of course it does, but at the same time, you're losing everything. You're losing all the ambience of the room where it was. Right. Rec- you know, you could tell. I could tell you when I was doing that. I could almost tell you exactly who was where the mic was. I mean, if they had a singer, then it was a singer was on the mic. As soon as he walked away, the band got louder. Because they only used one mic, and it was you know it 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 was just you I could hear the drum. I knew right away the drummer was like in the like you know maybe ten feet away from the band. The bass Mm -hmm. player was off to the was off to one side. It's all mono, but you could almost hear dimension. It's like if you put a mic today in the middle of a room and you had a band play. You know, and then you know later on. I mean, as it came later on in the '60s and '70s, I mean, it became. You know, they had record. They had records by then, and it was like stereo, and they had. You sure. know, we had to clean. We had to clean up a lot of the noise on the vinyl because the vinyl was horrible. You know, yeah. and don't yeah. forget, yeah. the ones in the '20s have been the only reason. I could get those as they when they made the the masters when they made the mother masters that they used, uh-huh. they would make two sets, one would go into the vault and one would be used sure and then when it was used they'd make an you know they'd they'd make another they'd make another one from that and another one from that, and instead you know these were all the ones that were put in the vault, so when I took out Duke Ellington like nineteen thirty something, that right. was the first time that it was ever played. I was actually listening I was actually living history because <gasps> it had never been played before. And That's crazy. you know, and I was like, wow you know That was
1: huge. No wonder you won a Grammy I man you were you were piecing together a broken and faded antique that needed to be lovingly restored and turned back to life again. I mean, it's like right. restoring a, an oil painting.
0: Right. And the only difference was unlike most engineers that or most restoration engineers, I went for I went for not changing anything. I liked right. it the way it was and I just made it sound the best it could. And yeah. a friend yeah. of mine who was working at Columbia they had had a thing out in I think ninety nine too in uh, uh, nineteen ninety nine, and they had a thing called a, hist- a history of music I think it was, or a century of music or something like that, a decade yeah. of music, and when it came up they were I was against them and I had you know I was at the Grammys I had no idea yeah, I... I said. <laughs> You know, and I went up to him, and he uh, he was he was at a, the nominee party before, the night before, and he came mm-hmm. up to me. He said, "I got to tell you, man." He said, "I voted for you." I said, wow. "What are you talking about?" He said, "I voted for you." He said, "What we did is a sampler. What you did, uh-huh. he said, is a is a a a, 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 a just. He said, it's love." he said it's yeah. completely he said I have... I listened to that stuff and he said I felt like I was in the room when it was right. recorded and he said right. that was a labor of love and mm-hmm. I said well thank mm-hmm. you and then when we went to the grammys um I had no speech I had nothing yeah. when we won I you know a friend of mine I was with she I you know she went to give me a kiss I was already up on the stage I mean I just I couldn't get, you know, I just like there was a vapor trail behind me. I ran on the stage and I got on the stage and they all, you know, everybody's talking and they came to me and they said, you know, you got to say something. So I thanked my, first I thanked my, my, uh, my children and then I thanked all the people at BMG for putting up with my craziness because it was about three and a half months that I did this and I was there from, to like 9.30 in the morning till like, 11 o'clock at night.
1: Good and, grief.
0: And then the last one I said, and the, the last person I'd like to thank is Duke Ellington, because sure. if he never recorded this, we wouldn't have it.
1: Yeah. And, and I walked the off
0: the stage, and I said, the girl at the on the side of the stage, you can't see her, she's off the side, she says, I'll take that. And I said, you'll have to kill me to take this out of my hand. <gasps> but it was, a, it, was a, it was a it was a it was a grammy but it had nothing on she goes no this is just a prop she goes they will send you your grammy i said oh okay and then you can i have mean it. i don't want to, it was it was an it was an experience you know yeah,
1: sure. and
0: unfortunately
1: so
0: uh, unfortunately uh the the grammys are not what they used to be they're more of a hollywood spectacular the music right, is right. to me the music is like secondary now. Yeah, and yeah. you know. I usually turn well, it on I like watched it this time around. It wasn't bad this time around. I thought uh this was the one I think with Jeff Lynn and yeah. um and and it was great. It sounded like ELO and it just showed that the old music is still the best.
1: It you is. know, it so is. Well, we um you know, we are, believe it or not, I have so much fun when you come on the show. We are coming up on almost the end of the show. We've got nine minutes left. And wow, that was fast. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? It's crazy. It's too fast. And to kind of bring us full circle from where we started, you know, I, Cynthia definitely could have let people know what was going on, Dennis. And, you know, she would have been flooded with cards and letters and flowers, but she never was like that. She no. She didn't want people to focus on her, you know. And, but you never know when you're going to lose someone that you care about that much and you got a telephone call from John on the 8th of December would would you mind sharing that in our last few minutes well together? it
0: wasn't a, it wasn't a phone call what it was is friday night i was working with the four tops and i was going home or i was going somewhere and yes. uh, i met my friend jack douglas i met him outside and he said to me john has been asking about you when are you coming And I said, well, I'm working with the tops. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll see you Monday at 730. I said, because we usually break for dinner around then. He said, okay, I'll tell John and we'll do something when you come. I said, okay. So the first the first thing I did is Monday we came in, I set up, we were working at the Four Tops, and I said, okay, I got to, I said, do we, uh, you know, are we going, going are you guys going to go away and we're going to come back later? They said, no, no, we want to record and we want to go through. We don't want to take a dinner break. And I'm saying, what do you, I said, I got plans. They said, I'm sorry, you know, we have to finish this tonight because we'll be in England on Monday, on uh, Thursday and we're flying tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We need a day to Whatever the reason, and I said, "Right, well, it's okay." At that time, I said, "It's okay. I'll see John. I'll go to see John at eleven o'clock because he'll be there tonight." So I get, you know, about eleven o'clock. I'm running around breaking the studio down. The producer comes out and he's white as a ghost. And I said, "What's the matter? Are you, are you okay? You feel all right?" He said, "Yeah, my my wife just called and said John has been shot." And I said, "That's a terrible thing to say. He's over down at the record plant." Now I'm working at R C A which is only a it's like a block up from the record it's on Sixth Avenue. Record plant was on uh between eighth and ninth. So it's like two blocks up on the same street on forty fourth street. Right. So right. I said, don't talk don't that's a terrible thing to say. And I said, Look, I gotta get out of here, I gotta go meet them. So anyway, i s I'm just about finished, I'm running inside, he comes out to me and he says sit down. I said, I don't have time. He said, sit down. I said, okay. I sit down. He says to me, John, John is dead. John was, John was murdered. Yeah. I said, you're carrying the joke a little far. He said, this ain't a joke. I said, okay. I said, let me make a phone call. So I called May at the time and Mm -hmm. she was screaming and did you hear? And I said, "You mean to tell me it's true?" She said, "Yes, you know." And I was like stunned. I was absolutely yeah. stunned. I couldn't have been more stunned if they would have shot if I had a brother. They would have if they shot my brother. I couldn't be more stunned than that. I yeah. couldn't get over it. I walked out of the studio and got in my car and went up to the to the Dakota. And there were yeah. people everywhere. And I said, mm-hmm. I just got to get home. So yeah. I got home, and, I, you know, I told my my wife at the time, I told her what had happened. And for the next, like, it seems like it was like 20 minutes, both of us are crying. Because, yeah. I mean, he was like, you know, he was like part of the family by this point. Right. And right. it was, It took, I didn't go back to work for almost eight days, nine days, and nobody mm-hmm. called. Because they knew how upset I was about the whole thing, and the only thing that I, I I never, if I had to say things that you know with Yoko that really bothered me, she had John, she had John I think burnt, she had John cremated, and she never let anybody go and you know pay their respects. It was all I, done by the next day, yeah. and I said yeah. you know. How could she do that? There's so many people that, you know, would pay, wanted to come and say his last goodbyes, especially me, May, and, every, and a friend of ours, Arlene. I'm saying I can't believe she did that. And yeah. it was like not only did the, somebody take him away, but she made it sure that nobody was going to see him. And I, saw I never a forgave tweet her from, about that.
1: I saw but, a tweet from Julian tonight that said over 10 million people have sent him messages in the last 24 hours so just imagine what it would have been imagine oh yeah um, i mean he she was
0: cynthia was a sweet charming beautiful woman and she was like so friendly to me it was unbelievable and she had like you know, she we would sit and talk, and she would say to me, "You know, how is it working with John?" It was like, you know, she was getting her information about her late husband from me. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the yeah. you know, like whatever insight she should she could get, and right. you know, I I told her what you know how good he was to me, and you know the the fun we had and everything, and you know the things that we did unfortunately i didn't ha they didn't have cameras that took pictures in those right. days, so I have you know it's my and i i tell people it's my word against whoever oh, cool. else wants to challenge it, but you could challenge it I know what I did I know what was done with him, with John and me I know what we sure. sang, I know what we did, so I don't really care yeah. you know right and it it just it it took that night. Changed my life, it really did, and it changed my life. And I don't know if everybody on the on the uh, out there is listening. It changed my life to the fact that when you know you talk to somebody, you say I'll see you uh, in a certain time or a certain day. I'll see, you know we'll get together, and you don't go. You say to yourself, well, I'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm. That don't happen with me anymore. If I tell you I'm going to meet you somewhere at a certain time, I'm there. Right. I don't put it off because life is so fleeting. One minute you you're you know, you're talking to this person and the next minute they're not there no more. And well, it's just
1: that's- that's really, that. I feel the same way you do. And I want to tell you, because we've only got one minute left, that I would honestly not have done this show tonight had you not been on there. You always brighten everybody's life, and you always make everybody smile. And I really appreciate you coming on tonight. And mm. I, I'm saying this because we are going to get together again. But thank you for being here this evening. I do appreciate it so much.
0: My pleasure. Anytime, Jude.
1: Okay, and God bless you. Keep doing what you're doing, and keep rocking the world because you're a great guy. Thank you. See you soon. And to all of you out there, Come back next week, as John used to say when he wrote Sport and Speed Illustrated. If you liked it, come back next week, and we'll do it again. We're going to have Andrew Grant Jackson, who wrote Still the Greatest, on with his brand-new book next week, and we'll find out what new project he's been up to in the last few months. For Dennis Ferranti and for me, in memory of Cynthia Lemon, shine on.